Hey, Sean. Hey, Derek. You know what I find really annoying? What's that? Trying to find good resources for learning new languages. Yeah, that is a pain. I find that by the time I'm done finding the things that I think are interesting and will help me, I'm out of time to actually consume them. It's especially hard to find resources for all the new hotness like Elixir and Elm. Right, and that's what I want to talk to you about. Today's sponsor, DailyDrip.com. You go there, you pick some topics you're interested in, like Elm or Elixir or CSS and HTML, or maybe you just want to learn more about test-driven development and how to do GitHub flow and things like that. You give them your email address, and they do the hard work of finding the material for you. They email you something every day, either a video or a reading delivered directly to your inbox. Oh, that sounds really cool. Right, and through five minutes a day, you can start learning your new language or new technique. Maybe I'll have to go learn Elixir now. Make learning part of your daily routine with dailydrip.com. Probably my other pants. I'll be right back. <laughs> Episode title. I've never heard somebody say that before. They're probably my other pants? Yeah. I did want to give a quick update if you want to hear me talk about Elixir. This isn't going to be the episode for you, but you can go to fullstackradio.com, and I was a guest on their podcast there, uh, and I talked about moving from Rails to Elixir in Phoenix. So if you want to hear me talk about more of that, you can check out that show. I think it came out pretty well. And then also another quick update. Sometimes co-host of this show, Lila Winner, has a new podcast, The Lila and Brenda Show, where she does interviews with inspirational designers and developers and other people in tech. Uh, I suggest you go check that out. That's at lilaandbrenda.fm. We'll put a link in the show notes. So what have you been doing this week? Uh, things. Playing poge- playing Pokemon at all? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very busy week. I'm assuming you saw the the big announcement that I was finally able to make. Um, that Rails Five is out. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, regarding regarding the small parasite that that we're currently cultivating. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm having a kid, so that's been a big thing. Congratulations. Thank you. Very exciting. And then, not as exciting as Pokemon Go, though, quite frankly. Right. I mean, right now, it's just there. Like, what does it mean? <laughs> no. So it's like, it's one thing, right? So you hear all the stories about people in Boston or New York or San Francisco where it's like everybody's out on the street playing it. And that's one thing, right? I'm out in the suburbs of a small town in Canada. The game isn't out here. So anybody playing it has had to circumvent things and sideload it, which, depending on if they're on Android or iOS, is potentially really annoyingly painful to do right and, and i'm not even in the, the friggin' city and i met a bunch of my neighbors who i never would have interacted with because one of them dropped a lure at a park near my house and like i go outside and i'll see a dozen people on the street i live on playing pokemon go in the suburbs it's everywhere yeah it's definitely when it came out here last week um i have never played a pokemon game before i know nothing about pokemon i know pikachu is a pokemon uh, that's about it. Uh, so I was having good fun making fun of Pikachu and I don't know Charizard. And good, you know, you know that they're not all named Pikachu, <laughs> right? I do now, anyway. Better than most people's moms. <laughs> that's what I aim for to be better than most people's moms on issues of pop culture, um, or their dads. Yeah. So I decided instead of just kind of like making fun of it, I would try the game out. And so I downloaded it and I installed it and I signed in. Uh, after many attempts to do so (laughs) and i logged on and i see the appeal like it's kind of cool to like walk around in the real world and interact with a game 
but I thought the app kind of sucked. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's horrible. Like, it, it's right. So it's basically a really shitty version of Ingress, which is the other game made by the same company, which has basically the same premise. And in fact, the best way to find all of the Pokestops and gyms is to go look at the map of Ingress locations because they just used that database. And it crashes frequently. Like, there's a, a park across the street from my office that has three stops that you can get within range of. And they're basically continuously lured. So there's continuously, like, 50 people there. And 20 of them at any given time will be restarting the app because it's somehow frozen or bugged. Right. The servers don't have nearly the capacity. I mean, it is, like, a horribly, horribly designed and written app, which makes it even more baffling that it has become as ridiculously popular as it is. And beyond the bugs, it's also just not, like, a very fun mechanic. No. Like you, you, so if you haven't played the game before, you like hold your phone and it's like an augmented reality type thing, or it can be. And when a Pokemon pops up, you get these little balls that you slide at the Pokemon and they go various distances in a seemingly like random way. You're like, I don't know, that felt exactly the same way the one before it felt, but that one hit the Pokemon and now he's captured or whatever. Um, and then there's other mechanics about fighting for these things called gyms, which I never really got to because I was like, uh, this doesn't seem for me. Uh, so I tapped out on it pretty quick, mostly because like I couldn't even figure out like I would like be trying to tap on a Pokemon and I would tap, it would end up like calling up the poke stop or the gym or whatever the heck was nearby oh yeah um, and it's just like i just i gave up and then also i played for maybe a half an hour and my battery was just totally toast right like yeah. just like <laughs> and so a lot of the people who are into it in the boston office have actually specifically bought battery cases just to yep. allow them to better play this 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 horrendous game <laughs> I went to the Best Buy by my house for an unrelated thing, but did note uh, that all of the portable battery packs were completely sold out. Yeah, doesn't surprise me. And at least for the, a little less so today, as I've been walking around Boston Common, but certainly over the weekend and earlier this week, if you saw somebody walking around holding their phone, they were playing They it. were playing Pokemon. Yeah. And it was an interesting kind of social thing because... I think it's like the first widespread augmented reality app, right? Like, I mean, it's definitely the first app where you can assume that somebody is using it by seeing them on the street. <laughs> right. Like right. augmented reality or not. Right. Because, I mean, it, it what? It beat Tinder in installs immediately. It passed Twitter in daily active mobile users almost immediately. And this can't all just be because it has Pokemon IP. It's a crappier version of Ingress. Like, whatever this is tapping into gameplay-wise, Ingress did as well. The only the only other uh, variable is it involves Pokemon. But it cannot be. It, it has reached a tipping point that it's beyond Pokemon. Because people who have never heard of Pokemon before are playing it, right? Like, Right. I mean, it's got to be, right, that if Ingress somehow reached this tipping point, Ingress would have also... Well, even So even people who haven't played Pokemon, though, still know of Pokemon. So that's a huge aspect of it. I guess. Yeah. But then, yeah, I mean, even if it is just it hit that critical mass, Pokemon's the thing that got it to that critical mass. Right. Like, from if anybody needed evidence that po the, the Pokemon license is, in fact, actually a license to print money, <laughs> here, here, here's the evidence. Right. And, like, if you haven't played the game before or you're not quite sure, the way they make money is through the system that you alluded to of lures, where if you want to have people show up in your area, like... This isn't what everybody's doing when they set a lore, but what you could do is if you, let's say you owned a restaurant somewhere right. 
um, you could set a lore, which puts some sort of high-value Pokemon there. Am I correct on that? Uh, it causes Pokemon to come to it. Okay. And these Pokemon are not a... Um, the Pokemon that are there are not a, resource, a constrained resource, right? So they're like, if it's Lord, they're just there. There's enough there for everybody. Am I right about that? Right. So when, like, the Pokemon aren't a constrained resource in general. So, like, when you capture a Pokemon, you're not taking it from somebody else. They just right. spawn in a spot and everybody can see it and everybody can catch it and then it despawns after a right. certain period of time. And lures just make them spawn in one specific spot. So the idea of the lore is, like, you can get people... You know who are in the age age group of like fourteen to thirty five or whatever this age, you know the demographics are to show up in front of your store. My mom has been playing it, and she's a lot older than, than okay. That I just I just but... guessed what the demographic might be. Um, yeah, uh, that's probably the core demographic. For sure. <laughs> um, so and you get them to show up in front of your store, and they might be hungry, and they might come in, and they might eat some food and pay you for it. Um, and it's like a dollar for every half hour or something like that to have to set one of those lures. You can also just get them for, for free from playing. Right. But businesses aren't going to do that, right? That's not how well, they're going to make the majority so one of the, the money. One of the bars by my work, what they what they do is they have a sign that says, if you set up a lure, they'll give you a free beer. Ooh. Wow. That's pretty smart. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. So like, what I'm getting at is from a development perspective, the success of this game, I think there's going to be a number of people who are like, I want... So like... For the last year, it's been, I would like to build Uber for X, or I want Tinder for Y. And now I think it's going to be, I want Pokemon Go for, I don't know. For whatever the know. hell else this makes sense for. Anything, any, basically anything a scavenger hunt would work as a promotion for. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the other fun promotion I've seen, um, right, so the way gyms work is uh, when you get to level 5 in the game, you have to pick a team. There's the red team, uh, which I think is Team Valor. The yellow team, which is Team Instinct, and the blue team, which is Team Mystic. Go Team Mystic, woo. And gyms get held by one specific team or another. And there's a coffee shop that happens to be a gym. So they have a sign out in front that says, uh, we will give a 10% discount to whichever team holds the gym here. <laughs> awesome. It, uh, no, it's just, it's, just it's, uh, it's very small and minor, but it's kind of clever marketing and plays into it very, very nicely. But it also, like, the fact that, the fact that, in less than a week, it got to the scale that people are doing that. It's just astonishing. Yeah. And, and like, what I was saying was, like, if you are, I don't know, a consulting company or you're somebody with some who does iOS applications for people, it may not be a bad idea to start building a framework for Pokemon Go type games that you could crank out and white label. I mean, it doesn't, isn't that Niantic now? Yeah, they, but, they they basically just took the the, the engine right. for for Ingress and right. put Pokemon in it. But why let them be the only people, right? And the, the the key is like they have the data, right? Right. Um, and the data set is impressive. So you know that's the hard thing to replicate. Also, probably the AR stuff is not super easy. But <laughs> <laughs> we're not going down that road. <laughs> Would you like to tell us about augmented reality? What of what of the people in my uh, who works in on my team uh, was like I'm gonna do a, an AR thing for Hack Days like this was uh, I think Hack Days was like a month ago mm -hmm. and I do I gave them like the 15 minute crash course here are the frameworks you need here are all the roadblocks you're gonna run run into here's the point where you'll realize that like phones aren't quite there yet. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you: Do you think the reason why this works okay is that it's a little less graphically like? intense than the kinds of things you were trying to do it's not doing actual ar it's okay. using the it's using the gyroscope ah. and, and nothing else 
Oh, right, because there's no... Like, what you were doing, you were putting an object in... In space, yeah. yeah and that's yeah. not really doing that. It's like, I'm going to show you what's on your camera, and then I'm going to use the gyroscope to put a thing. Right, and so what we were trying to do was... So we tried to do the e- the quote-unquote easy thing, which was we had a physical marker in space and then place something on that. And then we also were trying to do the significantly harder thing, which is pick an arbitrary point in space and place something there with no marker, which is only possible with something like... Uh, the Google experimental thing with the fisheye lens that I can't remember the name of. Oh, right. I remember, too. We'll link to it in the show notes. We'll figure yeah, it out. Yeah, that thing. Uh, so, for example, you, you'll see pick people like taking selfies with Pokemon or whatever. But if you actually try to get it positioned just so, so that somebody can take a picture with it and you move the ca- the phone around in the world, you'll realize just that, like it's a act- it's a very rudimentary form of, of AR. Right. It's, so playing, it's putting a sprite on the screen and moving it around with gyroscopes. Yeah, so it's literally, it's reading, the, it's per frame, it's reading gyroscope data, rendering the camera, rendering a single mesh on top of it, which is definitely quite easy to do. Because right. reading gyroscope data is, as far as like AR is concerned, it's constant time, and rendering either of those is, as far as AR is concerned, the mesh isn't constant time, but rendering the camera data is, is as far as the mesh is concerned, constant time. Of course, it's much more complex than that, but. <laughs> okay, cool. So they're not blowing what you did away technically, for sure. No, but it does for whatever reason. Like if you look at the, so I mean, they keep your GPS active one hundred percent, which makes sense, uh, and they keep your screen on one hundred percent, which they shouldn't need to do. But given that that's the like the app only works when it's active on your screen, okay, fine, that makes sense. Um, they also have absurdly high CPU usage though, which I'm surprised by. And also, uh, if you signed in with Google <laughs> on iOS, uh, oh yeah, if you signed in with Google on iOS, you. Uh probably want to go to your gmail settings and revoke that token because they fixed that in the latest update right i don't know if they did i revoked the token because i i so here's the thing this really pissed me off because i almost as as a rule i never sign in with google like there's a couple i think i sign in with google on stack overflow because i'm like yeah okay reasonably i want that to be tied to my identity which is for all intents and purposes, this email address, although we have an episode where we talk about how that's not a good proxy. Um, (laughs) And so I wanted to like sign up for my own account and it was like the servers were in such poor shape that it wasn't working. I was like, fine, I want to play this stupid game, so I'll try this Google thing. And then the very next day, somebody's like, did you authenticate with Google? Because you gave them full access to your Gmail account. And I did think it was really weird. I almost, I really kind of blame Google for that. Like Like at no point did it ask me for my permissions. So there's two possibilities there because it's not supposed to be possible. Right, so th- there's basically two options. Uh, number one, Niantic used to be owned by Google. Okay. This is wh- what I think is the most likely scenario. It doesn't make it any better, but I think it's the most likely just from like a here's how this happened, was that they had it. Because, right, if you install Gmail mm-hmm. or Google Maps or Google Docs, it also gains full access to your account with no, with no prompt because it has an elevated access API key. Right. I'm guessing because they used to be a Google-owned company, they had an elevated uh, access API key, which I'm guessing Google-owned companies becoming non-Google-owned companies is a rare enough occurrence that it was just literally a thing that slipped through the cracks. Okay. That's, that's my, my theory on what happened. The other possibility is that they were manipulating the DOM because they're using a web view to automatically click the... Uh, accept permissions dialogue, which yeah. should be difficult to do without it showing up ever because nobody's ever said, I saw the dialogue flashed. That's right. number one. Number two, it shouldn't be possible on iOS to begin with. Also, it would if it were found to have been happening, they would have pulled it from the store. 
Like right. Well, and then the only <laughs> the only way right. So it shouldn't be possible with the built-in uh, web view and developing your own web view is against iOS terms of service when fail static analysis. And also, like based on everything else I've seen on uh, on this app, for whatever it is, like I, I I would be afraid of it because it gives a big red target for hackers. I wouldn't be afraid of it because of the company because it's based on everything else that this app has shown. It's almost certainly due to somebody messing up and not due to malice right. because. <laughs> But yeah, all, I, all I of agree. All bugs seem to be due to poor synchronization when their servers are slow. Like, right. if, if you actually build a mental model around most of the pokes and poke, and poke them, they're almost all due to just the server taking longer to respond than they expected. And, like, how do you develop a mobile app without considering, hey, maybe we'll have a poor connection? Right. But I agree with you that the, like, I wasn't worried about it from the sense of, like, oh, I gave this company access to my Gmail. I was worried about it from the sense of, like, this game is massively popular people now know it to have full access to gmail to google tokens it's now a giant honeypot like right well, that's like given all the other bugs in the game like how much how much faith are, re- are you really going to have that they're actually handling the tokens super securely right so you also mentioned something else you were working on when we were talking earlier yeah i've been working on a new postgres adapter for rails what's wrong with the old postgres adapter for rails okay so there's there's a, a, a couple of things so this is actually a combination of things that are wrong with the Postgres. It's actually nothing wrong with the Postgres adapter specifically, because like if it was just an issue with the Postgres adapter, I could fix the Postgres adapter. It is a combination of problems that I have with the PG gem for Ruby, mm-hmm. and also issues that I have with the libpq library in C. The PG gem in general actually seems to be a pretty decent front end to libpq. I've butt heads with them a lot recently over things specifically related to um, handling of string encodings, uh, just because the way that Ruby handles strings is inconsistent with the way PG handles strings, and they seem to be unwilling to like put the code in required to be the intermediate between those two, and that's causing a lot of issues that we have to handle in Rails, or rather that we have to like pass on to our users because we can't really handle them in Rails. So that's been a, a, a source of frustration recently. They also tend to to allocate objects in Ruby more frequently than is needed, which isn't necessarily their fault because it's it's hard to not do that. Um, and it's gotten better recently. Like in Rails five, we're taking advantage of um, we bump our minimum requirement required version of the PG gem to take advantage of uh, some features they have. Like they'll parse uh, integers in C instead of in Ruby, so that way the uh, the intermediate string doesn't get allocated. Um, so you won't see it. you won't see the string three allocated a hundred million times, but like the fact that they had to do that to begin with, it actually uh, gets into a fundamental issue with the libpq library. Uh, and so libpq is a C library, which is the which shift with Postgres. So if you installed Postgres, you also installed libpq. And uh, depending on your distribution, actually, if you're on Linux, libpq might only come with Postgres develop or whatever the standard suffix is, it depends. But it's at least on, on Mac and on Windows and on, I think, Ubuntu, libpq ships with the primary Postgres package. Um, so it's a C library, and it's basically just a client to the Postgres wire protocol. And so the Postgres wire protocol is how you communicate with the server, telling it what you want to do, which t- is actually a little bit more complex than just saying, hey, here's some SQL, please run it. And one of the big limitations there... So when you send a query, and, and this is assuming you're dealing with paired statements because you're just, you 
almost always want to be dealing with prepared statements. And even if you don't actually want to deal with it, with it as a prepared statement, for simplicity's sake, you'll usually create a prepared statement, execute it once, and then immediately deallocate it just for the sake of code consistency because that tends to be uh, – you'd only usually ever do that for writes, and writes are slow enough anyway that the tiny, tiny amount of, of extra cost that has is not a big deal. Anyway – so you'll you'll send two commands to to the database. Uh, you'll first send it the command that says I would like to prepare a statement. So you'll send it the uh, the string, which represents the query you want to prepare. Uh, you'll send it the name that you want to store it under. That's how prepared statements work in Postgres. It varies for every database. The way it works in Postgres is there is no such thing as a prepared statement object. You give it a name and you will later reference it by that name. Uh, you can also send it an empty string, which means it's the unnamed prepared statement, which is the only prepared statement which is valid to just be randomly overwritten for no reason. Then you'll send it the number of bind parameters. Uh, you'll then optionally send it the OIDs of each of the bind parameters or null. And if you send it the OIDs, you can send zero for any individual OID. OID is the 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 type identifier that Postgres uses. So you'll so you'll be saying like bind parameter one is going to be a string, bind parameter two is going to be an integer, bind parameter three is going to be whatever. Null means uh, infer all of them, and zero for any individual bind parameter means infer that single bind parameter. And the way it infers it is it treats it as it would treat a string literal, because like Postgres has better type information than we do for when it comes to parsing a prepared statement. And then I think that's everything you send when you're, when you're telling to prepare the statement. Uh, and then later on, you'll send a, a second message that says, I would like to execute prepared statement, which will include the prepared statement name. Uh, and then the number of parameters you're going to send. And then you'll send it an array of Booleans saying whether you would like, whether you're going to be sending each value as binary or text. And this is important, right? So the only type for which this doesn't matter is the text type because the binary representation of text is text, which Postgres represents as a C string, uh, which is annoying if you're dealing with UTF-8, where null is a valid character because Postgres doesn't allow null, uh, even though that's valid UTF, but that's a different thing. But so if you're sending an integer, right, the binary representation is a 32-bit integer. If you're send, if you're And if you send it as text, you will send it a C string, which is the digits representing an integer. And it'll error out if you send it things that aren't a valid integer. There are, are other types where it gets much, much, much more complex. For example, the date or date time type, the binary representation of date time is a signed 64-bit integer. And Postgres uses signed integers for everything, even when in places where it makes no sense for it to be signed, which is really weird. Actually, I said that too early. Anyway, it starts with a signed 64-bit <laughs> integer. Uh, which is the number of seconds since the Postgres epic. Uh, the Postgres epic being, I think, January 1st, 2000. It's similar to, to the OS 10 epic, which is January 1st, 2001. I might have those backwards. It's one of those. It's definitely not the, the, the Unix epic. But, um, and then it sends a signed 32-bit integer, and this is where I meant to say that earlier, which is, really, uh, which is the number of nanoseconds on top of that, which is strange because you can never have a, number, a negative number of nanoseconds there, but that, like... And this is one place where the maximum value it could be happens to just fit in a signed integer, but they also use signed integers in, in tons of other places where it makes no sense to use signed integers and like severely reduce the representable ranges because they use signed integers. Anyway, calculating a date from that and then the text representation is actually non-trivial to figure out what you're supposed to send it. There's a handful of values that like for roughly every setting that you can have will probably be interpreted correctly. But there's a bunch of different settings you can set on both the server and on the connection, which change how it interprets 
date strings. And you sort of have to magically know these. And also parsing date strings is absurdly complicated, whereas parsing a 64-bit integer followed by a 32-bit integer is extremely easy. And even just for, for integers, which, I mean, integer parsing is definitely not a bottleneck in your Rails application. But that said, A to I, is, uh, which is the C function to turn a string into an integer, is significantly more expensive than just, here's 32 bits. They're an integer now, which is not even a operation that occurs in the CPU because they're just in memory already. And the casting to an integer is purely a compiler thing in C, uh, unless there's endianness conversion, which... You may have to do, Postgres will always send everything as network Indian, which is big Indian. Uh, most CPUs support both big and little Indian. Anyway, all that's irrelevant. Um, so so f- when you're sending a prepared statement, you'll, you'll state for every bind parameter whether you want to send it as binary or text. Then you'll send it another array saying the length of each of the values you're going to send. And then you'll send it a third array containing all the values. And when I say you'll send an array, what I actually mean is you will send it a address in memory and you'll s- send it the length separately. And uh, the length is fine because you also then send it the length of every element. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's all fine. Then the big limitation is that libpq has that the wire protocol does not have is when the data is coming back. So for libpq, you'll send it one additional parameter, which says whether you would like the results to be binary or text. Mm-hmm. The wire protocol allows you to individually send, uh, say for each column whether you would like back binary text and rails can make could take huge huge advantage of for some types bringing back binary like what what types date time mostly uh integer as well like integer would be a a straight win Mm -hmm. that's very common it would be less of a bottleneck for most applications most applications on most endpoints cast at least one date or date time that is the most expensive like core type okay now, the PGGM, if I recall, doesn't even give the option to get binary stuff back. And actually, in Ruby, like, if I'm dealing with this parsing in Ruby, there would probably be only minor gains for many of the types if I could get back as binary, because that, that would still have to allocate an, an array of probably integers would be the, or I guess, or, or an ASCII string. So you said the Postgres gem, the PGGM, doesn't give you an option to get back binary. That kind of makes sense, because what you told me is that the... Oh, you're saying, so what libpq makes available is saying, give me back everything in binary or give me back everything as text. Right. And, and the one important thing to note here is that I want to take advantage of the, the optimizations we can make by receiving binary data for integer and date. Right. I but do not want to have to waste time yeah. dealing with it for like the point type. Right. Right. Which like we support and I have to continue to support. But nobody's actually using. So libpq would allow you to say, give it all back in binary, give it all back in text. The PG gem doesn't even expose even that. I, I, I'm not, I don't remember off the top of my head if, if the PG gem exposes even that. But okay. regardless either way, what, it's not useful to it's not useful to your content. Right, because either way, the, what libpq is giving me is less is is less than what I want as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to specify per per column. And then there's just other annoyances that uh, I have with libpq, like how it handles warnings. Like it'll just randomly print out warnings and errors to the console, uh, which is not a thing a database interface should do. It should always have some sort of registered function, which it does have a registered function. You just have to know to override it. Hmm. Uh, and then it also allocates unnecessarily in error cases. I'm also in general looking at ways to improve the ability for Rails to um, deal with unique indexes which 
we've talked about this in the past. We could do a whole ep- we could honestly do a whole episode on validates uniqueness of versus uh, how how um, a unique index. Well, not just versus unique index, but specifically versus how uh, Ecto does it. And the, the TLDR version, which I think we've talked about this before, but the TLDR version is we have the valid question mark method and anything that works with unique indexes would completely break that interface. And that's a difficult thing for us to, to deal with. Right. Um, but anyway, I, that's, that's the thing I'm exploring. And neither libpq nor pg are great for, for dealing with that. libpq in particular, like when it comes to getting uh, fields off of a result object, it has this really, really funky interface where um, you call this method get result field. And then the first argument is an integer, which is the field that you want to get. So the valid values for that are never exposed programmatically. They're a set of preprocessor macros in C defined to be characters. Okay. Which is it's fine, but like if you're having to be characters, that implies that they're an actual constant, which is meant to be somewhat semantically useful to humans. Correct. Expose them as a C constant so <laughs> that there's ABI compatibility there. And then it'll, it'll also allocate every, for every single field that you might want to access, regardless of whether or not you are ever going to access it. Whereas the API that Diesel needs and that Rails needs, and uh, I'm actually extracting this adapter from Diesel, which is a, a, a separate thing. Um, but the API that both of those frameworks need is basically like, first say whether or not it was an error. And then we can say, we're going to need these fields. You don't, like, I don't need the library to allocate all of that memory. Right. Because if it's an error, I will know. Because the way the way that the the wire protocol actually structures it is very mostly well done for like giving it in the in the order I need it, where I'll be able to more or less usually figure out if it's an error first. That one I can definitely figure out if it's an error first, and then I think the next field is the the number of bytes in the message, and then the field after that's whether it was a fatal or a warning or something, which I basically will always ignore. But then the field after that is like the kind of error. And from that point on, I will know whether I want to actually read the rest of the fields or just basically pipe the rest of the socket into, into dev null until it gets to the end of that message. Uh, and so skipping those allocations would be nice. And when I say allocations here, I am talking about heap allocations at the system level. I'm not talking about Ruby allocations. Right. But like even when you're outside of Ruby, heap allocations are still expen- an expensive operation comparatively. And we are talking about critical hot paths here. Anyway, yeah, so, so there, there's all of that. And then it's also, so I'm extracting this from Diesel because a lot of this came out of frustrations I was having. Like, these frustrations started with the PG gem in Ruby. And then working on Diesel has made me realize a lot of my frustrations were actually frustrations with libpq in C. So I started experimenting with a new adapter for Postgres in Diesel, which is not currently in the Diesel repository because it's not done. And it will be a separate crate for a while before I merge into Diesel proper. Because, like, when I say, like, this is skipping both of those and just dealing with the wire, both PG and libpq, it means it's dealing with the wire protocol directly, which means it's dealing with raw TCP sockets. Um, Not super experienced with dealing with that. It's not not a super hard thing to do, but it just sounds scary, and the protocol Mm -hmm. requires you to implement a lot of complex state machines. So it'll be, like, an optional thing that'll live on its own for a bit. Um, But I'm also looking at pulling it out in, uh, and as an optional dependency of Rails. And that's why it'll be the Postgres 2 adapter, because the Postgres 1 adapter won't be going anywhere. Number one, because the Postgres 2 adapter will, will have a dependency written in Rust, which I can pre-ship binaries for a lot of things. But if you aren't on Windows, Mac, or the three Linux distros that we commonly pre-compile for, you'll have to have Rust on your system. 
Mm, right. But the idea being that you will see performance gains. You'll see performance gains and you'll also have memory safety gains. Like right. I have I have occasionally seen seg faults that resulted from either Postgres uh, or PG interacted with libpq indirectly, Rails interacted with libpq indirectly. And when you're actually dealing with the with the wire protocol directly in Rust, that like that is no longer possible. Yeah, I mean, this sounds insane to me. <laughs> the Why? replacing libpq, that part sounds insane. There's but there's le- like there's legitimate limitations that are hindrance. Right, but it just sounds like that's not a bridge I would ever consider crossing. But this is well, this is why we need full timers in open source. I guess so. <laughs> like, but why? So why not improve libpq? Uh, because it doesn't. It wouldn't be in Rust and give you the memory safety that you want. Is that? I mean, part that's of part of it. It's also Postgres is not the easiest project to contribute to from the outside in the world. And then honestly, the biggest part of it is like libpq knows this limitation. It's not like this is oh to do. We'll fix this. It's a. I I I think a big part of it is just due to the nature of C libraries. Hmm. It's very difficult for them to actually change it because they can't change the signature of the of the the uh, related functions. Okay. And or they don't think that there's value in doing it. But you're right. I could I could probably I could probably attempt to to just make this change in libpq, and that would be a reasonably valid path. There, there there are two additional reasons I'm doing this besides just the the, the performance gains. The first one being I need a test bed because I've been talking about the new how I want to improve the interface for uh, third party connection adapters because they break every version, and I don't consider that to be an acceptable situation. And I wanted to fix that for Rails five, but I just ended up not having the time due to due to job changes and whatnot. So it got pushed to five one, but JDBC in particular, the fact that JRuby didn't work on Rails four two for almost a year, I consider unacceptable. And what I perceive to be the solution is we need a public API. That is how third party connection adapters are built. I definitely am going to dog food that for all the entry adapters, but the easiest way for me to spike on that is just to build a new adapter from scratch. So wait, why did why did JDBC not work so, for a year? The type system changes that I made in Rails 4.2 mm-hmm. affected the connection adapter a lot. Okay. And the connection adapter is almost entirely private API. Okay. Um, so there are just a lot of breaking changes. And like the way that the JDBC adapters uh, were implemented, I think still are implemented, is a little bit backwards. And uh, if, if they are listening, like this isn't news to them, but it's like they have the abstract JDBC adapter that they inherit from. And then they have a bunch of code that is then copy-pasted from the SQLite or uh, MySQL or Postgres adapter like into their adapters. And I remember at, Rail- at RubyConf going to look at it, and I sat down at the, at the JRuby table, and I was like, let's, all right, let's do this. Let's get you guys on 4.2. She's like, I don't want to write all of the code that I already wrote again. Like mm-hmm. The way it should be implemented is they should inherit from the active record adapters and have a JDBC module that they mix in that overrides the appropriate things to deal with JDBC stuff. Right. I don't know if as part of the 4.2 migration they did that, but basically that was why it didn't get done immediately and nobody had the time to work on it. Um, I think as a result of that now, JRuby devotes more significant resources to that adapter than they used to. Either way, my goal for all this is, and, and, I, and 5.1 is not going to be fun for them, um, my goal is that with, with with this change, I also am just a person who submits a pull request to every major, like, in-use third-party adapter 
by in use, I mean, sorry, Firebase guys, you're probably not going to get a pull request from me. But uh, mm -hmm. SQL Server, Oracle Enhance, and JDBC, hopefully, I, my goal is that I will have the time that they don't have to care. And I will just submit a pull request as soon as I have it, the new API in a branch. Because it will be a, it will be a, the most painful migration yet for all of the, the, the third-party adapters. But the end, end result being that we have a solid public API that we're willing to devote to as public API. It's structured in such a way that's not like part of the problem is that the connection adapters are right now built on inheritance. And it's very easy to add a method right. that doesn't actually work for everything, but like it needs to work. <laughs> and, and, and there's, it's, it's, it's non-obvious when you're, when your entire structure is things subclass from you and override the appropriate methods. It's right. very hard to know like, oh, you just made a break and change public API. For the, so for the entry adapters, are people really adding things to like the abstract adapter and not checking that it works in like MySQL, Postgres and is that it for entry? Uh, SQLite? Uh, well, no, because the test would fail for those three. Right. Right. But, so what you're saying is people are making changes and forgetting that there are a whole host of adapters that are not entry. Is that what? It's not even that they're forgetting it. It's just that like SQL Server and Oracle in particular are just they're they're special. <laughs> they do they do things differently. Right. Like literally before we got on this call, I was talking with Ken, who maintains the SQL Server adapter, and like SQL Server doesn't even have its own wire protocol. The way you execute a prepared statement in SQL Server is by running some SQL. Yes. Yep. Which familiar is familiar with this. <laughs> like, which is fun when you have to vary the way that you quote strings when dealing with quoting, otherwise you break indexes. And it's just like nothing else works that way. Also, nothing else has six or seven string types like SQL Server does. <laughs> so what is it? Text var car car n car n var car n text. There's a seventh one. There's another n one. I don't remember what it is. Apparently, it's also six types of dates in SQL Server. And there's no implicit coercion between any of these. Well, nobody wants implicit coercion. You kind of want implicit coercion between text and varcar. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so that's that's the second reason. And the third reason is just there's a lot of big wins that I think I could make in Rails with optional native extensions. Mm -hmm. And just Rust seems to make the most sense to, to write those going forward. Yeah. So this is also an, a great opportunity for me to experiment with, like, how feasible is it to ship a native extension with Rails that is written in Rust? Okay. And ideally, I, ideally have it be, like, well, one of the big things I want to figure out is, with RubyGems, can I figure out a way to ship this native extension written in Rust without having it be a separate gem? So have it actually be part of Rails, but with a pure Ruby fallback or some sort of fallback so that we don't have rust as a requirement for rails itself this all makes sense to me and i'm glad you're working on it full time <laughs> yes no and, that, and, that, and, that, and that's one of the things is this is just one of those like this is a major research project which will have potentially significant gains for a large percentage of our users but like i can't say right now that i'm i have any way of saying like yes and when i finish this everybody using postgres will see x improvement um, I definitely can apply a lot of this to MySQL as well, because the MySQL driver has a lot of similar issues. But it's like, it's, yeah, this is one of those things. I could never imagine being able to do this if I didn't have, if I wasn't able to take like two or three weeks 
and I mean, I'm not spending all of my time working on, but like with a significant portion of my, of my work hours contiguously, like focusing on a thing that may or may not work out, but it's like, yeah, this, this is very firmly in that, in that category of problems where it's like, yes, full-time open source people are needed to work on these sorts of problems. Right. So yeah. Anyway, that's a thing that I'm working on. <laughs> It'll be out next week. Yeah, it'll be out next week. I feel like I've just been rambling about about how Postgres works for 30 minutes now. No, it's fine. I found it interesting. And it'll definitely be out by the time that people hear this episode, right? Oh, totally. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, hope, I'm <laughs> hoping... Right, so there's a, a very solid chance that this will all amount to, like, this is not worth the time, or just the early benchmarks don't show significant enough improvement, and it gets scrapped. I, I'm, I'm hoping within two weeks to have the, like... Here are some early benchmarks of like this does not do everything we need it to, but it does enough for me to see if the bottlenecks that I think it will improve are improved. I'm hoping in two weeks to have like the is this a thing even worth pursuing bit done. And then my goal is to have this as part of 5.1. All right. Partially just because I want to get the new connection adapter API with 5.1. And this gives me a really, really good test bed to, to spike out on on what that needs to be. Because um, the way I'm going to try and go about it, I think, is finish up the adapter as an adapter for diesel, separate out the the state machine TCP Postgres stuff from the diesel API stuff uh, into into a standalone library, and then basically from scratch look at okay, what does Rails need to interact with this without considering the existing connection adapter API, and then see if that actually supports. If that's generic enough to support all the other uh, adapters, yeah. Also, have some like some needs that you would never think about. Like one of the ways that I broke Oracle in Rails five was um, I made limit and offset use by parameters instead of having the numbers go directly there. Assuming you're using prepared statements. Mm-hmm. As part of that, I just followed the ANSI SQL standard limit and then offset. So when we construct the query, the bind parameters will be limit and then offset. Oracle's different. Oracle has offset and then limit. <laughs> it's like fetch first n rows after x, but that would still be limit and then offset. But something like that. It's fetch. It's like fetch n rows or something like that. But it's 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 the it's uh, the opposite of the ANSI standard. It's like little weird needs like that are are things that we have to consider. But I mean that's why just communication with third party adapter people is important as part of the whole process. And I'm just now rambling about Rails. <laughs> internal politics things this isn't even politics i don't know what to call it speaking of rails internals how's your proposal for uh a I've modified let, release no, process going no. <laughs> what are you shaking your head no 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 you just haven't had time to do I, it i no, i yeah I, I don't have i haven't had time to fully get it out there and it's i have nothing to, i have nothing to report on that okay let us know when you do i will um, I shake my head no so that Tom edits that out because it's just like <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to be like, oh yeah, that, right. I should do that. I need I need to find time. <laughs> That'll happen before the listeners hear the next episode as well. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be an ongoing meme where we're gonna promise that things will be out by the time the listeners hear this episode. All right, let's wrap up. Yeah, yeah. Okay, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash seventy three. As always, ratings, reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. So always, thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.